This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everyone, it's Takuya here, and before you start this episode, I wanted to give you a heads up about what it is that you are listening to. This is a patron-exclusive episode that I have pulled in order to be able to put on here because my wife and I are currently still in Austria, and as a result, we have not actually had time to go and record the episode that we needed to get done this week. That is my bad, there was simply way too much it is that we had to do. But either way, this is the first episode of the series that we have on Patreon. And when I say series, I mean this is part one of like what is easily a six or seven part series at this point, and it is still going. This is an intense deep dive that we are doing into the complete story of the French Revolution. So if you want to get the rest of those parts, then make sure to go ahead and subscribe to Patreon, because not only are you going to get all the additional bonus episodes that we put on there, but then simultaneously they're ad-free, so you don't actually need to be interrupted by ads, like you more than likely will be several times over the course of listening to this podcast episode now. So check all that out. It's only a dollar a month if you want to hear more of it, but either way, I hope you enjoy the episode. Everyone's like, are you here? And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to a patron exclusive episode of the podcast that I know from the moment that I'm starting this off right now, people are like, finally, it's here. Because yes, I know it's been like, what, this is a week late at this point, or it's almost two weeks late. It's three weeks late, Steven. Wait, three? Oh, God. Yeah, there hasn't been a patron exclusive posted in a month, but that's okay, guys, because you're going to get five parts. You're going to be sick of us. You all don't understand. Going into this whole thing when I was planning on writing this, I thought like, okay, okay, French Revolution, right? This is what I promised. And it's going to be something that is going to be three episodes, right? Because I'm going to have uh, the beginning, like the lead up to it. We're going to have the revolution itself and everything that goes on it. And then we're going to have Napoleon. And that seemed to be the most reasonable course of action that I could do. I could divide it into three. And then I start making the damn thing. And I'm like, oh, shit, no, this needs to go in here. Oh, no, I need to talk about this part. Oh, no, this, this has way more detail that I need to talk about here. And pretty soon, I was like a full two episodes in. And I had just reached the Bastille. That's the start. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Listen, that's the start. Gabby, Gabby, I'm going to be talking to you about this here, obviously, because this is our podcast. And this is what we're going to be doing. But you have no idea how much information there is going into this thing. Like, there is a reason why I have been writing and working on this for like two weeks straight at this point and hadn't had time to record anything, which is why there has been no episodes that have been released until now. Which I'll say this before we go ahead and begin the podcast itself. Guys, as you all are aware, Peru is live. So if you want to join us on that adventure, remember it is the lowest costing trip that we have managed to put out there yet. So if you want to hike Machu Picchu, if you want to go see all these things, there's still some early bird spots left. 
So by all means, go click the link that I'm going to put in the description if you want to join with us because you all are our patrons and you are the supporters that make all this possible in the first place. So going on a fun adventure like this, I think would be amazing. Anyway, French Revolution, or I guess in this case, the lead up to it in the first place, because Gabby. Which revolution though? Didn't they revolt? Um, oh my God. Like a bajillion times. So which one are we going over? The, the original, all right? The the revolt of 1789, ah. which is like the other name that it has for it. The, um, the blood orgy one. The origin story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The oh, old. wait, this is the one where they beheaded everyone, right? Yes, yes. This is but the they did that in all of them, though. Yeah, but this one was worse because this was the one that was just filled constantly with the reign of terror. Perchance, do we dive into at any point exactly why they chose beheading as their execution, preferred method of execution? This was during Enlightenment ideals, right? And so during the uh, Enlightenment, one of the things they wanted to do was to give as quick, clean, and painless of a death as possible. And the best way you could do that was to be beheaded, or at least you think you would. But, 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 here's the issue. I feel like they could have just given a... Well, you know how they would execute people before? Like when you would be beheaded? Your head would be chopped off, like with an axe or something. Oh, and if they missed, they'd have to go back in. Like, yeah. didn't that happen to Marie? No. Yeah, it was... There was were... it Marie Antoinette? No, no. Um, well, we're going to get into the whole thing. For it happened execution to with someone who was getting executed and then they had to go back in. It wasn't Ooh. even the guillotine. It was because what they would do before is they would use like swords and axes and stuff. And there were specific blades called executioner blades. I remember because there's the classic image of a ginormous dude with that ginormous axe and the little weird helmet hat thing. Yep. Yep. So they would use that. How did you get that job? Did you have to like apply for it? Like, hey, I'm really good at killing you people. you didn't want to. We could do a whole thing on the history of executioners, but in most societies, executioners, though they were paid well, they were heavily looked down upon. Also, the so amount of criminals had that job. The amount of therapy that you would have to get. I'm sure they didn't have good health insurance at the palace. God, no, no, no. And again, that's one of the reasons why they did. So you know how there's that whole idea of the idea of a scapegoat of like, oh, all of our sins are going on to one person. Or like one like Did you just object? pick your least favorite person? Hey, you. You look like you'd be good at murdering. It was criminals. Gabby, one of the punishments that you could get is like, so you know how people would be branded? Like, oh, you're an adulterer. You're a thief. You're a whatever. So typically speaking, these some of these branded individuals that could not get jobs in other places would end up getting jobs as like executioners or something. So criminals would become that, they would get that kind of position because there was still the whole concept within Christianity, especially going through Europe of like, thou shalt not kill. And executing someone was still something that was like, oh, this is an unclean thing. We don't want to actually kill someone even when they're sentenced to death. So we're going to have this criminal do it and the blood is on their hands. I kid you not. That was like literally one of the things behind it. So, so executioners were well paid, but they typically lived as outcasts in societies. Like they're... They could be wealthy and still live in like the bad part of town, even in a nicer place. That's so... And people wouldn't want to work with them or serve them or anything. Okay, well, now that we've enlightened you, see what I did there? Ah, 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 <laughs> with ah. executions, let's jump into the revolution. Yeah, the revolution. But, before, but we can't do that. Oh my no, God. No, no, no. Gabby, I mean, what do you think is going to happen in this? We got to talk about context. Because we're talking about the French Revolution, and you can't have a story about the French Revolution without understanding what created it in the first place, right? Poverty. 
Well, yes, poverty, but there's so many other factors. Even going into this, there were some of these things that I didn't realize because you know how everyone, well, I not say everyone, but a lot of people are probably aware that going into the French Revolution, there was all those issues with um, uh, bread prices and everything. So there was a- How was their housing? Their mortgage bad. rates? Oh my God, gas really prices? bad. Uh, not necessarily gas, but oil Was the middle class else. doing okay or were they just getting shoved under the bus? Middle class barely existed at this point. Mm. And it was even worse. But the ones who were getting really hit, hard hit were the lower classes. But we're going to get into that. Okay, we're going to get into that. What about that. rent? Was the price of rent? Terrible. <laughs> oh no, no. There's Maybe we should French revolt. Listen, America. Listen. <laughs> I know that you're drawing a bunch of references to the stuff today for how people are acting. And I kid you not, over the course of doing research for this, there were a lot of parallels. Like one of the things was talking about, oh yes, over the past uh, half century, wages had increased by 20%. Awesome. The price of rent increased by 60%. Oh my God. I love it when history repeats itself. Are we going to be the next friends? Oh God. Uh, hopefully not in this anyway, kind of scenario. Guys, vote me for the new government. Thanks. Not even vote me in power. Vote me for the new government. Yeah, it's said. just me in our room making every decision. Oh, yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> so, okay. Context. We need to actually get into this thing here with France. Otherwise, we will quite literally go nowhere. And it's just going to be all references whatsoever. These episodes are also probably going to be longer. I'm saying that from the beginning right now. So, France, right? At first glance, when you're looking at this in the 18th century, France is definitely one of, if not the major powerhouse of Europe. It really is. It was the greatest power among the five great European powers, at least in terms of a mixture of size, wealth, etc. Like, you, of course, you have France, you got Britain, you got Austria, Russia, and Prussia. These are the five great powers of Europe at that time. And it was the largest state in Western Europe. Moreover, its population at the time was 28 million people, which is obviously small by today's standards when we're looking at stuff for a country. But at that time, that was massive. That made it the most populous single state in Europe after Russia. France also wasn't just like, you know, big in terms of its population and whatnot. It had a huge colonial empire. It was in the Caribbean. It had outposts everywhere. Its colonial possessions were not necessarily as extensive as those that the British had, of course. But by the 1780s, they did have extremely valuable ones. In fact, when we're talking about this, remember how we talked about Haiti before in a previous podcast, Gabby? Yeah. Well. In the 1780s, they had the richest colony in the world in Saint-Dominique, which would later become Haiti. And then in 1780, Saint-Dominique would supply half of the world's export of coffee and sugar and would generate twice as much revenue as the entirety of Spain's richest colony, Mexico. Mexico? So, yeah, so, so Mexico. Okay, here's the, here's the key point when I talk about this for how valuable the new world was in terms of minerals and stuff for trade. 80% of the world's supply of silver came out of Mexico and Bolivia over the course of like the 1500s going into the 1800s. It is insane just how much silver they produced. And that silver had to be used to trade for silks, teas, spices, all other kinds of things in Asia, right? So Saint Dominique, Haiti, that would make more wealth than the entirety of Mexico. That wow. is. That is how valuable of a, a colonial territory that was for France. That was Haiti? The, yeah, remember, we, we talked about it before. I remember we did that podcast that what the, uh, the French get-rich-quick scheme was to go to Haiti, own a plantation or invest in one for like a couple years, and then leave. 
before they died of before disease. they died of yellow fever and like, was it yellow fever or was it dengue i'm pretty sure it was yellow it had to fever be yellow. wasn't it dengue is what we still get yeah do people people probably still get yellow yeah, fever too they but do. dengue is more rampant in the caribbean i guess and i think what yeah was yellow fever so they had to get out within a couple of years because the death rate after like five years from yellow fever was insane. So, you know, they had to, uh, they had to, it was a pretty much a get rich quick scheme. And so in the late 1780s, right, France is sending more trading vessels to India than Britain. And in between 1787 and 1791, they're even shipping more slaves from Africa than the British is. This is huge. And the most vibrant section of the entire economy was from that, as you can probably guess, the sugar and slave trade, the thing that would operate out of the Atlantic ports of Nantes and Bordeaux. However, other areas of the economy would also undergo serious expansion going into the 18th century, because in Paris, they would have all this commercial farming that would spread, while Lyon would remain the center of banking and the silk trade. France was wealthy. Like, it was stupidly wealthy. And this is a thing that a lot of people don't really realize going into it because they think, oh, yeah, Brit Britain had the greater economy. Britain was the one with all this industrialization and other stuff, right? They were the better one. France was a monster in comparison to, to Britain. It was. I think Britain's strength, I mean, I know Britain's strength, was just their navy. Like, they were mm -hmm. just a massive military power. It was their navy and efficiency. That's the big thing. It doesn't matter how big you are if you're... I mean, let's say that you're going into a fight. You're twice my size or something like that. But your feet are rotting off. So you can't actually step anywhere. It doesn't matter how big you are at that point. Your foundation is screwed and you can't do anything. And that was one of the big problems that we're going to be getting into when it comes to France. But it's like, it really doesn't matter at this point. People don't really see it. By 1789, France's GDP was three times that of Britain. It was huge. Its large population, its colonial trade, all of this would provide a huge tax base through France, which was going to be able to use it to finance its military. And as a consequence of that, France would boast the largest European army of all the European states, as well as a very powerful navy. Not as powerful as Britain, mind you, but it was definitely a competitor and they had a much more powerful land force. The power of that military has been illustrated so many different times, especially by the crucial aid that France was going to provide for the United States during the American Revolution, specifically when they would fight in order to screw over the British. And then aside from that military might, France would also enjoy a huge amount of soft power. I mean, think about it. Even to this day, when you talk about culture and refinement and all of these different things when you're associating stuff that is fancy, one of the big things is, that comes to mind is France. Well, in fashion, yeah, people are all, even to this day, yeah, they still even look to, to Paris. Day. Yeah, it's huge. And France has existed like that for not the past two or 300 years. That has been the case going back all the way into the medieval ages. It's wild, though, because when we were in Paris, none of their outfits really popped. Like, we should be looking at, like, Korea and China and all of those different places where people do, like, street fashion. Because they oh my god but i hate all the ones who invest in those stupid luxurious stuff specifically as statements and then they can't actually afford it i know but their fashion is like so good there is in some comparison. cool stuff though, i'll admit i fully understand that I, I i do totally get that but it's like again theater music fashion exactly as you said all that stuff is everywhere and that's what people are looking for it's hugely influential 
French philosophers, because remember, this is the time period in which enlightenment is becoming a huge big deal. Voltaire. So, yes, Voltaire. Uh, 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 God, what is the other one in here? Voltaire is the one that always comes to mind, though he also simultaneously is famous for rigging the lottery, which we should actually tell his story. That might actually be a fun thing for one of these episodes. But all these different, um, all these different philosophers, hugely important role in the 18th century enlightenment period. The thing is, though, if you want to describe France as anything, you could almost describe it as a kind of paper tiger because it is, it is huge, it is wealthy, it is strong, but it's almost like a glass cannon in just how fragile it could potentially be. Hey everyone, it's Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Because despite all the advantages that we're talking about here, the French state suffered from a lot of different issues, a lot of structural weaknesses that were very different from its great power status. Because as an example, first, France would suffer from financial problems over the course of the 18th century because the nobility would enjoy all kinds of different tax exemptions. They were, as an example, exempt from the tail, which is the principal land tax. The Catholic Church, which owned one-tenth that is 10% of all of the land in France, they were completely exempt. They had to pay no tax whatsoever on any of that. Instead, what the church would do is they would negotiate something called a don gratuit, which is like a, uh, a free gift. <laughs> you can almost say it's a bribe to the crown, so the crown doesn't have to actually send taxpayers to look in, or not taxpayers, uh, tax collectors to look at stuff for the church. Instead, the church is just like, ah, oh, yes, this is our contribution to the crown's finances and it will be so so much lower than anything that they would reasonably have to be taxed if they were actually being taxed so that that's what they would do and then as a consequence that means that the overwhelming majority of the taxes would fall on the lower classes the people that could probably least afford it between one third to half of a peasant's income was siphoned away by different taxes and dues to other people, like to the church, to the noble landlord that they worked on, to the state in taxes. All of these different things would take away, again, a third to half their income, and they weren't even making like what it is that people do today. It was barely subsistence level even back then. Moreover, 56% of the tax burden would also fall on landed property, the least dynamic sector of the entire economy. Because it's not producing anything. It's taxing land, not actual labor or productivity. So that wasn't able to actually do anything. 
Second, from all this, the numerous attempts that the French state to try and reform their tax system over the years, all of them would fail. They wouldn't be able to hardly do anything. So even though they had this massive robust, 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 robust that's the term that I'm looking robust, for. Robust, yes. Robust, <laughs> it was robusty is what it was. It, it, they, <laughs> the French big b- b- money bosom was huge, but simultaneously it provided no milk. There was nothing that, okay, don't look at me like that. I was on a roll there for puns. Don't even look at me like that. Okay, Gabby, don't. Seriously, though. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Listen, they had all of these different things that they wanted to try to do to reform the tax system because they knew that they weren't getting all the revenue out of it that they needed. The problem was the French bureaucracy all over the course of the countryside and these things called parliaments, which is not like parliament when it comes to Britain. In fact, I'm probably not even saying the French pronunciation for this right. But think of it as like a local judicial court because there was 13 different parliaments or so across the French state. And these would be staffed by, can you guess the people who would be working it? Nobles. Nobles. Of course. Yeah, yeah. It's always the people with the money that mm -hmm. have the most political sway, Mm -hmm. even back in the 1700s. And the parliaments were what actually enforced and did anything for local taxes and laws. So, oh, so they're yeah. just going to be like, hey, y'all, um, you're going to pay us a ton of, oh, bro, they do that today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they paid, like they, they wouldn't pay. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do anything. The crown wasn't able to actually enforce any of the things that they tried to do, which just ended up sucking. So in the 17th century, the reason why this got so bad is because in the previous generation, remember how there was the whole thing for um, um, uh, the, the absolutism within the French crown? So what they would do, right, is that in exchange for political favors and for cash boosts for the crown, they would sell these positions. So if you wanted to be like a judge or something within a parliament or some other kind of like senior bureaucrat official within it, uh, you could buy that position from the French state. And the French state would use that in that time to get money, which was good for them at that time. But it means fast forward like 20, 30 years. Um, now you have a person in power that bought their way in and will not let any of that power go. And that is going to create some massive, massive problems. And, and fourth, in addition to all, not even fourth, not that, third, third. I forgot, I skipped a completely different system in here. So the French tried to do all this stuff through royal decrees and royal authority, but they weren't able to do anything to overhaul the tax system. And then past that third, although the French economy, such as its colonial trade, was flourishing, economic development elsewhere was severely hindered by guild restrictions, by internal customs and barriers. Like, you know how, um, like, you know how there's individual sales tax between all the U.S. states, right, Gabby? And they differ, yeah. Yes. Some states have no guild tax. Yes, they do. Oh. That's just something that they implement because they get their taxes through other services or other things. Like, they get other forms of income or revenue. But what imagine, if you will, that if you were going to buy a good from Amazon, right, and that good had to ship from California to Kentucky. Imagine that every single time that good entered another state, you had to pay a tax on it. So it passes through Nevada, have to pay a tax, passes through uh, like going through Texas, have to pay a tax, Yeah, passes through Missouri, has to pay a tax. Every single way along the route, even when flying, because it flies over airspace or something, it gets taxed, which that sounds dumb in the first place. But you know what I'm I mean? Writing, if it was going by road. 
I'm going to write a letter to Congress. I think they this the French were onto something. We could really implement that. No, Boost God, the economy. No. We're in debt. This is how we pay it off. <laughs> That's how we pay it off. We'll see. That was one of the big problems. So local lords and parliaments and all these regions would tax stuff that would come into their areas, you know, through their own internal customs barriers to protect their own industries or whatever from their own area. And it would screw things over. So they weren't actually able to do anything, leaving even less revenue for people on the local level. And so the development of manufacturing and early industry enterprises would lag severely behind other countries like Britain. And although new crops and agricultural techniques, such as, you know, potatoes, which remember, remember we did that whole thing on potatoes when that was introduced for the first episode. Yeah. So they were trying to introduce like potatoes and crop rotation and other stuff that was very slow to spread. Not the least of which was because the whole thing with potatoes was like, oh, this is a, this is a Protestant vegetable. We're not going to eat it. Uh, ha ha, it's bad. That's what a lot of people were saying at the time, you know, less flowery language than I just use, obviously. So it, it just, it wasn't a good situation. But the worst thing was that even though they had all of that, and there was all this farmland in France, over the course of the 1700s, there was a large series of harvest failures. Like the first half of the 1700s were really good for harvest. And then starting in like the 1770s or like the 1760s and the 1770s onwards, every couple years or sometimes even every year, there would be some kind of major harvest failure. And this over the course of the 70s and the 80s would lead to drastically high food prices. It would lead to poverty. It would lead to hardship. All of this for massive percentages of the population because like 89%, I think it was something in the 80s or yeah, I'm pretty sure it was something in the 80s in terms of population were subsistence level where the majority of their income went to food. And that's what they had to do. Which is not good if food prices increase. Fourth among all this, and I know we're listing a lot of reasons because you have to understand, this is all background that we're creating right now. This is literally all background. The French structures of administration that they had in government were not uniform at all. It wasn't standardized across anything, right? The French state had expanded drastically over the course of the early Middle Ages through a mixed process of conquest, of marriage, of inheritance, of all these kinds of things. And as a result, different laws and codes within different regions would be completely different. Like there was no overall central authority um, law that applies across all of France unless it's just dictated by the what king. What about the king? That's the thing. The king could, but remember the parliaments? Right, right, They would right. resist. There were constant battles between the king and the parliaments and all this other stuff over who had the authority in what situation, whether or not it was enforceable, or even if okay, it was, please. just ignoring it. This literally sounds like Congress and the president. And but worse, <laughs> but gets so much worse. Yeah, you're right. As an example, one of these that I was able to find was that Brittany, which is the region up there in north, um, northwestern France here, like the very tip below, uh, below England, they were not going to be affected by a very unpopular tax that was a tax on salt, which was called the gabel, is what it is. Or gabi, gabel. I got it in here in the notes that I was looking at it on here, but it's like that, it was the salt tax, basically. So they taxed salt, the, the only good thing that probably existed in the food. Oh, salt taxes were one of the most common types of taxes that people would really Because salt was needed by every person in society. It didn't matter whether you were a commoner, a noble, etc. Everyone needed salt for the purpose of preserving food, for flavoring, for literally everything. 
the state needed to control salt specifically to use for the preservation of food for military campaigns. Salt was the most crucial product next to actually having food itself. That's, that's it. Like he was easily one of the most valuable crops, not crops, products overall. And that's just what it would do. Simultaneously, remember how I mentioned those parliaments? Yeah. Not uniform in size at all. There was like, what, 13 of them, I think. And among those, the parliament of Paris, like that jurisdiction, was one third of the entire country. So one out of 13 of the parliaments controlled a third of the country. So that parliament was actually in charge of the country. It was really powerful, very influential. Yes, it was. It just means that even if you could implement something in one area, it does not mean that you could actually get it in another. It just was not something that could really work. And it just is bad. Simultaneously, a fifth one, there were a lot of demographic and social changes that created their own problems because the growth of population along with the widespread system of partable inheritance, which is like, remember, gavel kind where uh, the, the land gets divided equally amongst the children. Well, because that was continuously happening in the countryside as France's population was growing and not a lot of new farmland was being added, this just means that the bigger farms that were producing lots of food became less and less and less efficient over time as they were gradually consolidated into, not consolidated, um, broken apart, it's the exact opposite, into smaller farms, like smaller plots. Which How means, did it, it would be less efficient? Yes, and that means that the people that were working them were not able to produce enough crops to sell at a greater profit, so more and more farmers out in the countryside were on subsistence level, where they were producing what they needed to eat with not as much to go to the market. So then what did the people who needed to buy food do? Now you're asking the good questions. They starve. Oh, uh, they could plant their own garden. Nope, I mean. <laughs> not when you're in the city. Not when you're in the city in here. And it was not something that was applicable or what Move? they could do. Uh, see, there's a great question. That was one of the first <laughs> things looking at this. Like, well, why didn't they push more people into the countryside to do this? Because they didn't really have the land or development to be able to create more farmland in other areas. Also, what jobs did people in the city do? If you've moved to people who are doing specific jobs out of the city, who would do those jobs? Exactly. And then you lose out on a whole sector of like productivity when it comes to manufacturing. That's one of the things the that would The parliaments didn't see these holes and decide, hey, maybe we should do something before we fuck this up royally. It like, weakens their own power. I want you to think about this. You are a noble, right? Who owns this big plot of land that you are potentially renting out to a couple families. Over the course of that time, four families, as they be fruitful and multiply and whatever, that four families now becomes eight separate families. Those eight families now become 16 by the next generation down. And so pretty soon, now you have a landlord that is collecting rents, not from four different families, but from 16. So he's happy about that. So he's happy about that. Now you see where there potentially could be a little bit of a problem. All of this is a problem. Mm -hmm. no, well, it's true. Yeah, no, now you can see it's a problem. No, literally everything that I've been listing here so far has been a problem. So what that just means is, remember, all these farmers are on basically subsistence level already with less to go to the market. So what happens if there is a harvest failure? Uh, famine. Famine. Starvation. Famine. Starvation. That's what happens. But they could eat cake. We're going to get into that later. We're going to get into that later. So. Stagnating agricultural production, rising inflation, all this was going to further erode the purchasing power of the peasantry. 
And as bread prices would rise and real rate wages would fall, an increasing proportion of the poor's income had to be allocated to subsistence. Like they had to pay more for just bread versus being able to buy anything else. And the problem with that is it's like, okay, well, at least they're still able to eat because the peasants are now spending less money on other goods. What happens to the overall economy? Sorry, I missed your question. What did you say? Oh, no, because the peasants, remember, because it's kind of like what happens nowadays in here, like with the whole thing for behind student loans. Actually, it's a great parallel. Oh, I didn't hear the question. Loans. Sorry. Oh, that because peasants now had less money to spend, they had to spend more money on food. They have less money to spend on other products. What happens to the economy? Well, it, it shrinks because no one's putting any money into the economy. Correct. That's the big problem. That's the big issue is that because France, which already had a weaker manufacturing but industry than Britain, now has less money going into it. Here's what I don't get, though. A huge issue that we have, well, we had with inflation is they kept raising the interest rates so people stopped spending money because that was hurting the economy. So, like, what is it? Do we spend too much or do we spend too little? What is the just right amount? Just tell us that we spend that. I know. That's the whole thing. It's a balance. It's something that has to be monitored. And also, this is in the day before there's just a whole bunch of paper currency that is flooding the system. I'm stressed. So that's, that's like one of the big issues in there. So yeah, this would undermine demand for manufactured goods, which in turn would have a negative impact on textiles and other industries. And as an example, some 10,000 textile workers that before had been working in Troyes were unemployed by 1788. 10,000 people lost their jobs in manufacturing because of poor bread harvests. That's how bad that is. Really? Yes, really. That's, again, everything in all this is connected. So as the process of polarization just continued further and further and further, it became more and more evident by looking at, like, if you look at the social scale, the nobility dominated the higher echelons of the Catholic Church. With the parish priests on the lower levels, these were people that were relatively poor, and they were more intimately connected with the local peasants as well as the urban communities that, you know, they actually interacted with. Meanwhile, you have the traditional nobility, uh, like no, uh, nobility, which was also constantly being resentful of the entry of these rich commoners. Because remember, this is a time period in which people are going off, doing a little bit of trading, making a buttload of money in Asia, and then coming back and being able to live like kings, right? So this was particularly the case amongst a lot of those old sword nobility types. What's like a sword nobility type? France martial nobles, like the knights, the oh, okay. knights of old, the people that would have been serving within the military. Kind of like of, this former, like the samurai. Exactly. So these sword nobles really disliked the new up and coming nobles because a lot of the newer people that were once commoners, but they got wealthy and the French state needed money. So what did they do? They sold noble titles and positions to people. You could effectively buy something off of an impoverished noble. Why would people buy a noble title though? Social status. But you're certain, already rich. No. You can buy whatever you wanted. No, you couldn't. There were certain aspects and things. Oh, remember, right. They have those laws, sumptuary laws. Yes. That only nobles can wear this and only nobles can buy that. Okay, fine. Also, you wouldn't be allowed into certain venues. You wouldn't Society be allowed to be doing exactly. Has always been a little bit weird. <laughs> Correct. Meanwhile, the rising land rents meant that the aristocrats with larger estates were becoming less and less dependent on royal appointments. So they didn't actually need to gain power and influence through the country. They could instead just do so in their own land. Um, all these issues with pensions before that they would have been assigned would only get worse as these were things that became less and less, um, what's the word? 
not not de- not dependent, uh, reliable, less reliable going into the 17th and 18th century because they had no money. And so the failure to reform taxation meant that although France on paper was technically speaking a wealthy country, simultaneously, um, it couldn't actually use any of that wealth. And so the crown, in order to finance its wars, in order to finance its building projects, in order to finance any of the things that it had to do, how do you think it got its money? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How did it get his money? Debt. Oh, like we did? You gotta borrow money. How did they do debt back then? Everything was physical currency. Yeah, well, you still, you can borrow from banks. You can borrow from all these things here. And that's what they would do. So Who tracked would, it? Huh? Who tracked the debt? Uh, the comptroller of France, like the finance minister, which we're going to be getting into. Did you in just erase it? Like you're a oh country. No, They're literally a country. Who's going to, how are you going to collect? you could, but what ends up happening when those countries would do so, because they would also borrow from like the national banks of other countries. Oh. And when they would do so. War? Yes. Because technically speaking, failure to pay the debts and entering into bankruptcy and just calling off your debt in order to collect upon those debts, other countries can declare war on you. Okay, fine. So maybe that wasn't great, but you just buff your military. So here's what you do to get rid of your debt. You stack your military. and France. Mm-hmm. 1700s friends, if you're listening, this, write this down. Oh, my God. You stack your military super well, like insanely. You put all of the money that you don't have into your military, right? And then you cancel that debt. You're Boom, who's going like, to attack you now? You're sounding like a less politically or politically and financially sound Napoleon. Wait, I'm less sound? When you, okay, because here's the issue. I want to be more no, sound. Here's the issue. Here's the issue, right? Um, so you basically canceled all your debt. You are trying to become self-sufficient in this scenario. What happens like in the case of France? Oh, I didn't you, think about becoming self-sufficient. I was just saying we're not going to pay them. Okay, okay. Then that means that you wouldn't have the ability to import any other goods or products that when your people are starving. So, no, so what we do is now we're mercenaries because I buffed the military with all the money I didn't have. And that's going to... Fuel our economy. We're Switzerland, but France. Just a hyper militant. A hyper militaristic. <laughs> fr- and then the issue with the farmers is gone because we just give them all like swords, guns, whatever they fight with. Oh my God. Problem solved. You can uh, go fight for your food now. Look at that. Okay. See, well, here's, here's the funny part because you're talking about this whole thing for like, oh, you can just do the stuff with the military. Here's the crazy thing. Um, when you look at French history and what was going on during this time period, France, which, as I said before, had been, this was the supreme military power of Europe, like on land. It absolutely was. But over the later half of the 18th century, France was not necessarily going to do so hot. 
They because they to- didn't stack their military. Oh my God. No, they did stack their military. They just ran into so many other issues or other things would happen where they couldn't balance it. Like, okay, they suffered a whole series of military and diplomatic reversals over the course of the second half because in 1756, there was something called the diplomatic revolution, which was this whole weird thing. And I'm going to try to explain this. France was allied with Prussia for many years before because their rival was Austria. And they, they, like, France and Austria were the two big Catholic powers that were basically competing for influence and prestige among all the things within Europe, at least within that region, right? Like, that's what they were doing. And then what ended up happening is that as Prussia was fighting Austria and Austria was losing out to them, France started to realize, oh, hey, um, Prussia is starting to get more friendly with Britain. And Britain is our rival that we hate. So we can't do that. So France ends up allying its rival Austria and Prussia, which was kind of rivaled slash competing with Britain, ends up rivaling with Britain. So it was like a double switch of the alliances because before Britain had been allied with, uh, with Austria. It was, I'm so confused. I know, right? That, that was, so was everyone else at this time. It was a diplomatic reversal. So here's the alliance system. France, Prussia, Britain, Austria. Fast forward a couple of years. Alliances now. Britain, Prussia, France, Austria. It's like they, they, they reversed it so that um, uh, like for, how for shits and this? gigs. With shits and giggles. It's just because the diplomatic situation had completely reversed, right? And then France broke its alliance with Prussia, as I said. It allied with its traditional rival, Austria. And between 1756 and 1763, it would fight Britain and Prussia in the Seven Years' War in Europe. And simultaneously, this, while it was war with Britain and its colonies in North America in the French and Indian War, it also had to deal with a proxy war that was being conducted by the French and English East Indian companies in India. This is where people say that like the, the Seven Years' War was the first world war because it was being fought in Asia, it was being fought in Africa, it was being fought in Europe, and it was being fought in the Americas constantly. Like in America, we call it the French and Indian War, but the significantly bigger conflict of it is the Seven Years' War overall that was going on during all this. And that, I got to say, is a massive thing to tackle here. And I have to talk about this oh because my God. no, no, I have to. When have are we to. revolting? I know. All right. But listen, you can't talk about the French Revolution without talking about the Seven Years War, because this is the this is the first major domino. This is the thing that would set the stage for every single thing that we're talking about here. Right. So for those of you who are confused, who haven't really studied anything for the conflict before, the Seven Years War was something that was fought between 1754 and 1763 with the main conflict occurring during the seven-year period from 1756 to 1763. And this would involve every European great power of the time, except the Ottoman Empire, spanning over five continents and affecting Europe, the Americas, West Africa, India, and the Philippines. The conflict effectively split Europe into two different coalitions. You had one that was led by Great Britain on one side and France to the other. And for the first time ever, Aiming to curtail Britain and Prussia's ever-growing power, France, as I said, would form a coalition of its own, which would end as Britain rose as the world's predominant power, altering the European balance of power. So conflict between Britain and France would break out from 1754 to 1756, when the British would attack the disputed French positions in North America, and they would seize hundreds of French merchant ships. 
Meanwhile, with the rising power of Prussia, they were struggling with Austria for dominance within the Holy Roman Empire in Central Europe. And so in 1756, the major powers, as I said, shifted alliances. And Prussia, allied with Britain, France, allied with Austria, with the diplomatic revolution, to curtail that. Now, the Seven Years' War is considered to be the first world war, at least by some circles. It is something that not only affected the European political order, but simultaneously affected all these different events around the world. It, this is the thing that would pave the way for British supremacy over the course of the 19th century. It is the rise of Prussia and Germany. It's the beginning of tensions with Britain and North America. And from that, the rise of the United States. And after that, a severe sign of the turmoil that was going to come with France. It was not going to be good. So, okay. Europe. This is the way that we're going to kind of break this down because, again, this is a lot of different theaters of things to talk about. And I have a feeling that I could do a full episode that was dedicated to just the Seven Years' War. I definitely could. But if we're going to be talking about this conflict right now, we have to start in Europe. So realizing that war was imminent, it was going to be happening at any moment, Prussia decides that, hey, we're not going to wait. We're going to preemptively go and we're going to attack Saxony in 1756. And they do so and they overrun the entire thing quickly. This, as a result, caused a uproar all across Europe. And because of Prussia's alliance with Britain, Austria would go and form the alliance with France, seeing an opportunity to recapture Silesia, which Silesia, which I don't even have a map or anything up in front of me. But have you seen any of the old maps of Prussia, Gabby? What Here. makes you think okay. I've seen an old map of Prussia? <sighs> like, what about me screams? I can't even explain this. Do you remember the World War I maps of Germany where it's like, you have Do Germany. I remember the World okay. War I maps? Okay. You know no, 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 no. I'm closing out of this right now. I'm I do once this again ask, what about me specifically screams I would have seen a World War I map of Germany? <laughs> okay, okay, hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it up oh right now. Gosh. I'm pulling it up right now. So this is the classic image, right? Okay, I'm scooting over to you right now. Scoot, 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 scoot. Our mics are about to give the worst feedback oh my God, known no. to man. Here, I'm tossing my phone over to you. How are you going to read through the podcast? Oh, my God, you I'm, guys. I wish you could see this right now. I'm pull, I'm gonna, what I'm, am I looking at, bro? I will pull it. It's the thing marked in red. Okay. So that's Silesia. So, I don't know where Silesia is located. <laughs> I don't it's know in what, red. It's marked I there. know. I know. But what is this? Well, today, today for Silesia, that's a part of, it's a mixture from like what? The Czech Republic and Poland. They're for that whole region. That, that it, it is a region that is extremely valuable in terms Should of its I, like, resources. Should I throw your phone back now? Yeah, toss it. Okay, guys, I've seen Silesia, and I feel like I've learned so much. Okay, anyway, Prussia had stolen Silesia from Austria in a previous conflict, right? And so Austria really wants it back because Silesia has a ton of mines. It's got a lot of mines. It's got a lot of valuable resources in it. They want it because it's necessary for really any industrial power in that region to have it. Problem is, of course, Prussia does not want to let it go. That's like an extremely valuable thing that they don't want to get rid of at all. So, reluctantly, by following the imperial diet, most of the states of the empire end up joining with Austria's cause. And the Anglo-Prussian alliance ends up getting joined by smaller German states, such as Hanover, which remained in a personal union with Britain. And Sweden being afraid now that Prussia was going to expand further into their territories, because remember, this is something that Sweden still had a little bit of an empire at this time. They went to war with Prussia in 1757 to protect their own Baltic possessions because they had, you know, little stuff down there. 
Spain then intervened on behalf of France, and together they launched an unsuccessful invasion of Portugal in 1762. And the Russian Empire was originally aligned with Austria because they were afraid of Prussia and their ambition in the uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth region. But do you remember when we did that episode on Catherine the Great? Yes. What happened to the empress that was allied with Austria? I don't remember that. Well, remember how her son, uh, not son, or nephew, it was his nephew, right? Peter. Peter, the incompetent one, the one that played yeah. with all the toy soldiers in here. He was a, um, he was the 18th century version of a wearaboo, which is like, you know, those, those people oh, that were obsessed right. with Nazis. And so he supported that other side because he, he was worshipped with them. Germany. Yeah, he worshipped Prussia, basically. So that whole thing, Russia originally sided with Austria, but then flipped sides and ended up siding with Prussia after that whole thing broke out. Oh, my God. They really needed, like, um, guidance. Oh, my God. The entire conflict is a massive mess. It is chaos. Also, it's kind of funny that we talk about First World War, like, considering what happened in the First World War with Russia getting knocked out of it. Anyway, despite the huge disparity in numbers, okay, 1756 was successful for the Prussian-led forces on the continent. And in 1757, Frederick the Great would march into the Kingdom of Bohemia. And although he would win a very bloody battle, the, uh, the Battle of Prague, and he would lay siege to the city, he would lose the Battle of Kolin, which forced him to lift the siege and then withdraw from Bohemia altogether. Things at this point were looking a little bit grim for Prussia, with the Austrians now mobilizing to attack Prussian-controlled soil and a combined French and Reich's army, which is the, um, the army that is formed by a combination of all the German states, because the Reich, that, that's what that refers to, they were approaching from the West. But then at the end of 1757, the entire situation in Germany gets reversed. Because after winning the battles of Rosbach and Luthen, Friedrich once again establishes himself as Europe's premier general. He is, uh, dude, I need to do a whole episode on this guy. He is crazy. But even if they were winning amazing victories, the Prussians still had to face the prospect of four major powers attacking them on four fronts. France from the west, Austria from the south, Russia from the east, and Sweden from the north. Prussia was in a dangerous spot here. And so in 1758, following the failed invasion of Moravia, Frederick stopped his attempts to launch a major offensive into Austrian territory, and the Russians then turned around and invaded East Prussia, where they would remain until 1762. Then the years 1759 and 1760 would see several Prussian defeats, partly because of the Prussian misjudgment of the Russians, and partly as a result of good cooperation between the Russians and the Austrians. And then the French planned to invade the British Isles in 1759, but they were prevented by being defeated at sea, twice. And you can't invade an island if you don't have a navy. And so by 1761, forces on both sides were exhausted. They were seriously depleted. There was nothing they could really do. And in 1762, one of the major deciding factors of the entire conflict happens. Russian Empress Elizabeth dies, her successor, Peter III, recalled all Russian armies from Berlin and then mediated Frederick's truce with Sweden. He also placed a core of his own troops under Frederick's command. Literally switched sides mid-conflict because obsessed with the Prussians. And this turn of events is known as the second miracle of the House of Brandenburg because the House of Brandenburg was the house that controlled the whole thing with Prussia. Like, seriously, it, was a, it saved them overall. Frederick was then able to muster a larger army and concentrate it against Austria. You know what would actually make a fun alternate history video? What? 
what if Elizabeth hadn't died? Like, if she hadn't died, Prussia would have continued to be pressed by both Sweden and Russia on the same side as well, which means Prussia would have potentially lost the Seven Years' War. And then what would have happened? I need to do that. That probably would be a really fun one because it's a very, it's a crucial moment in history that if she hadn't died when she did, her German-obsessed nephew wouldn't have taken over. Anyway, in 1762, this would bring two new countries to the war because Britain would declare war against Spain and Portugal. They would then join the conflict on Britain's side, and Spain, aided by the French, would launch an invasion of Portugal and succeed in capturing Almedia. And eventually, the Anglo-Portuguese army would chase the greatly reduced Franco-Spanish army back to Spain, recovering almost all the lost towns. By 1763, everything was pretty much a stalemate. Frederick had retaken most of Silesia and Saxony, but not the latter's capital, Dresden. The Russian emperor was overthrown by his wife, Catherine, who then ended Russia's alliance with Prussia and withdrew from the war altogether. Like, they didn't switch sides again, which would have been really funny if they did that literally again. Austria was now facing severe financial crisis and had to decrease the size of its army, which, as you can probably guess, decreasing the size of your army in a war is going to greatly reduce your amount of power. And in 1763, a peace settlement is reached with the Treaty of Hubertsburg, ending the war in Central Europe. And that's really it for the conflict. Massive mess. I could have gone into way more detail about all of this, but it was basically all summary. What? So now we got to the revolution? No. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Okay. No, but you have to understand that the revolution would almost come as a kind of direct result of this. Because check it out. During the war, Great Britain had conquered the French colonies of Grenada, Guadeloupe, 
St. Lucia, Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent, the Grenadines, Tobago, which, yep, that was a whole thing they had there at that time, Gabby. little reference there for you. <laughs> <laughs> the French trading post that they had in India, the slave trading stations at Gare, the Senegal River, all of its settlements, the Spanish colonies of Manila and the Philippines, all of these different regions were captured by the British. And the French, in turn, had really only captured Menorca, as well as some British trading posts in Sumatra. While Spain would capture the border fortress of Almeida in Portugal and Colonia del Sacramento in South America. They really didn't get much progress. And so in the treaty, most of these ter territories were restored to their original owners, but Britain made very considerable gains. France and Spain restored all their conquests to Britain and Portugal. Britain restored Manila and Havana of Cuba to Spain. And Guadeloupe, Martinique, St. Lucia, Gori, and the Indian trading posts were returned back to France. But in return, France would cede Canada, Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent, the Grenadines, and Tobago to Britain. And France would also cede the eastern half of French Louisiana to Britain, the area from the Mississippi River to the Appalachian Mountains. And in addition, while France would gain some of its trading posts back in India, it simultaneously had to be recognized that the French traders there were, well, they were forced to rec be recognizing like the British as their superiors and rulers of Indian native states and trade and pledged to not send any troops to the Bengal region to interfere. Effectively, the British from that point on would have full sway in India because they no longer had to compete with the French there simultaneously. The Seven Years' War would produce very little territorial or political change in Europe, but simultaneously it would still entail massive losses for France, which was forced to surrender all of its colonial possessions in North America. But the bigger problem, remember how they financed all these wars, Gabby? How? Debt. I know, but so they, every other country was just fine just giving them money? Yeah, so they borrowed from their own banks. They borrowed from all these things. Even now, to this day, it's a thing that confuses a lot of people. Fun fact for anyone. There's this whole thing that has been also, talked with sorry, I'm, oh. I don't want to interrupt you here, but I have to ask. Mm -hmm. We owe China money and China owes money too. I was about to bring that up. How on earth are we all owing each other money? Money isn't real at this point. Come on, be so for real. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What ends up happening is it happens from state banks here, which are not the same as being owned by directly the state. That's not what happens. So the money within these banks, right? They get loaned out and they in return, interest gets paid back on them. Here's the problem. When it comes to a lot of these states here and when they are borrowing money, hell, how do I even phrase this here in the first place? Okay, okay, so, so, so check this, check this. They're borrowing all of this money to pay these things, but it's not a direct one-to-one -one trade with that state. The majority of debt within America is not owned by China. A lot of people from on the lower level with politics will say like, oh my God, China owns the United States because all, like our debt to China, et cetera. No. The majority, China owns like what? What is the percentage of it? I know that the majority of debt is owned by U.S. banks, but let's see. U.S. debt to China. Percentage. I should have actually looked that up here from the beginning. China holds 11.6% of the U.S. foreign debt, which is still a large amount, mind you. That's still a good amount. But you have to think, in terms of debt, the overall amount that China owns is chump change in comparison to what America owes its own people from its own banks. And that's how a lot of that works, right? Yeah. So there were massive losses that they were facing during this time. 
France's involvement in the Seven Years' War cost around 1.3 billion livres. The government raised 788 million livres from new loans and 386 million livres from new or extended taxes and 60 million livres by selling different offices to people. That same thing that they were doing before. Before the war, Louis XV's government was carrying around 1.2 billion livres in debt. By 1764, this had increased to 2.3 billion livres. The explosion in public debt was compounded by the loss of the American colonies, which drained millions of livres in foreign resources and trade from the French economy. Because remember, Gabby, that was one of their big money makers were all these stuff for colonies. So not only were they now massively in debt, they had less means by which they could earn income to pay that debt. It was a problem. And here's what I mean by this. The average worker in France, in France made three to 10 levers per day. And so into all of this comes the man that the revolution would focus around. Louis XVI. Remember, they're only making three to 10 levers per day approximately. And they are 2.3 billion in debt. So if you even if you tax Casual. all of the 28 million people here from all of their income, you're not getting close. Because think of it, th think of it like this. Let's say that each person made 10 levers a day, right? Yeah. Right? Okay. Okay. So let's say that they do that. Um, there's 28 million people in France that they have at the time. So that's 280 million. If you taxed every single person for their entire day's wage, you wouldn't come close to being able to pay that. What did they do? when they didn't pay that because obviously they didn't pay it um that's what we're going to be getting into because the problem was is that the loans in many cases would have to be extended and when they were extended interest got worse and or they would come up with other means trust me when we get into the other means by which they tried to raise revenue and why they tried to do other things you're going to see where this shit goes south fast so, okay, we talked about the Seven Years' War, we talked about the money situation, we talked about society and all the stuff that was going on in France. There is one key factor into all this that we haven't talked about yet, and that is the man, the myth, the legend, the guy with the lack of a head. Louis XVI. Louis XVI, yes, exactly. So Louis XVI was a guy that was born on the 23rd of August, 1754, as Louis-Auguste de France in the Palace of Versailles. But what's Question. up? Question. Yes. Which Louis built the... Palace of Versailles. Uh, that was Louis the Fourteenth. Were they in debt back then too? Sort of. Remember, they raised a ton of money during that time period by selling offices, and that's what they do. Yes, they would go into debt at different points, and then they would sell more offices and other stuff to get more money. <laughs> Their money management skills were atrocious. I know that's one of the reasons why the French state <laughs> suffered so much is because its financial system was terrible. Guys, if you managed. have not seen the Palace of Versailles, we got sick of walking through. It was just gold and bold. And at some point we were like, okay, we've Super seen what gone. we needed to see. We're done. Mm -hmm. So this guy was the son of Louis Ferdinand, who was the Dauphin or like the heir. So the Dauphin is the, um, the heir to the throne for France, much in the same way as the Prince of Wales for Britain is the heir to that throne, right? So he was the only surviving son of King Louis XV of France. Um, which, which was his father, Louis Ferdinand. Yeah. And the Dauphine had first married to Infanta Maria Teresa of Spain, and their marriage was an affectionate one, but her death in childbirth at the age of 20 would devastate the Dauphine, 
who was quickly forced to remarry in order to try and make sure that the family line would continue. In 1747, he would take Marie Josepha of Saxony as a second wife. And although the marriage was really kind of loveless, it was at least fruitful because it would produce seven children. So, as a child, Louis Gus was strong and he was healthy, right? Good start here for a king. He enjoyed physical sports. He often went hunting with his grandfather, Louis XV, and his two younger brothers. He was also rather studious, particularly excelling in his studies of Latin, geography, and history. But despite these traits, Louis Auguste was definitely not cut out to be king. He may have had these skills, but he was simultaneously withdrawn, he was solitary, he was charmless. Like the guy was just, he did not know how to hold a conversation Damn. with people at all. The That's young, me. Yeah, the young Duke of Berry was often overshadowed by his, ed- by his elder brother, Louis Joseph, who was the Duke of Burgundy, who was already showing pretty good signs of possessing the liveliness and charisma that was needed to be a good ruler. But then his older brother would die. Oh, no. He would die in 1761 at the age of nine. Or not at the age of nine, but when he died at that, Louis Auguste, the guy who would become King Louis, he, at the age of nine, was now second place in line for succession. Four years later, his father would die from tuberculosis. The same disease would also take his mother before the end of the decade. Who's, how is he spared? We do, it's just one of the things that would happen. And upon his father's death on the 20th of December, 1765, 11-year-old Louis Auguste would inherit the title of Dauphine, becoming heir to the kingdom of France. And so with the absence of any kind of father figure, the responsibility of raising the future king would fall to the Duke de la Vognon, who was a rather strict and conservative tutor. So Vognon's curriculum would mostly consist of religion, morality, humanities, and these kinds of stuff. And he didn't really give any kind of lessons that were good for like, oh, hey, this is how you run a country. This is how you do politics. This is how you make decisions. It was more focused on, again, religion and morality and all this other stuff. Like, that's just what he focused on. And so, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of historians actually credit Vognon's tutelage with Louis Auguste's future like, as being the reason why shit went wrong, because it made him super indecisive, it seems. Or at least that's one of the theories, because he was naturally kind of timid already, and his tutor apparently taught him that that was a good thing, that timidity, humbleness, was a virtue. Like, because, you know, within the church, like, that's something that you should do. So he was always nervous and not voicing his opinions, not doing things. A great quality for a king. do as a king. Yeah. You see where that would potentially be a problem. So, 1768, time passes. In order to strengthen the new Franco-Austrian alliance, Louis XV arranges for his heir to marry the Austrian Archduchess, Maria Antonia, the youngest daughter of the Habsburg Empress, Maria Theresa. The wedding was celebrated in Versailles two years later on the 16th of May, 1770, when Louis Auguste was 15 and his bride was 14. Despite going by the French version of her name, Marie Antoinette, the French populace did not forget that she was a foreigner and she would oftentimes be referred to derisively at, uh, as the Austrian woman. And so still very shy and awkward, Louis Auguste was either unwilling or unable to consummate his marriage on his wedding day. Which remember, they're 15 and 14. (laughs) This was a husbandly duty that he was not going to do for seven years. Good. So he didn't sleep with his wife for seven years. You've heard of waiting till marriage. He was waiting till not being 14 and 15. Yep. Sounds like a smart guy. 
Yeah, well, the other thing that was a bit of a problem is that I get maybe it's because he was a teenager or something, but he oftentimes just ignored her. Like, he literally didn't do anything. He preferred going out on hunts and think just of, leaving her behind. Think of your high school sweetheart. Now think of having to be married to them forever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. The whole thing, though, with how he would actually treat her would cause a lot of uh, embarrassment to the couple. And their lack of children would lead to a lot of ridicule, both in the form of ridiculing Louis Auguste as, as possibly being impotent and also that Marie Antoinette was unfaithful because after seven years they suddenly started having kids then maybe it was her sleeping with another man ah uh, see 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 that's this oh this is where you get into a little bit of a problem or 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 you know they they finally figured out how to do it right you know yeah See, <laughs> maybe they were thing. doing it wrong so one of the theories that i had heard growing up was that uh he suffered from a thing called phimosis which is, I'm not going to explain it in here, but it creates some difficulty for, um, for, for, for storming, forming sexual difficulties. It's like a thing that can happen with a man. Um, and there was also the idea, here, look it up, look it up here. Gabby, you, you, you say what it is, because I'm not even sure how I could properly explain it. It's like something where the foreskin, I think, doesn't actually go down, I think. Is that what that is? It's a narrowing of the opening of the foreskin so that it cannot be retracted. Ooh, that doesn't sound very comfortable. Yeah. 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 It gets too narrow, so it doesn't actually, it's not able to go down. That's what it was. So there was an idea that he, he had that. But as it turns out, I guess that's not actually true, though that was what I had heard when I was younger. Um, and he wasn't impotent. His wife, Mary Antoinette, wasn't like, for, for lack of the better word, she wasn't like not wanting children or anything like that. She wanted one. And so some historians posit that Louis' self-imposed celibacy was actually more of a psychological issue. As some historians say that he was afraid of being controlled and manipulated by his wife in the same way that his grandfather had been controlled by all of his varying mistresses. Because yes, that was something that happened. Remember the whole thing with a, the mistress of the king being an official position within France? Which king was it? Because I know in Versailles, we, when we toured, um, he had a lot of uh, mistresses, but he loved his wife and he felt super bad about having when all these mistresses. he thought that he was going to die. But then he still had them. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I just feel so bad because I love my wife. I don't know which king it was. I think but... that was Louis XV. I think <laughs> okay. that was actually him. I just thought that was hilarious because he was like, and also I'm super religious, so I just feel like I need to stop. The, did he stop? No. Yeah. No, no, no. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. So either way, for whatever reason, the couple doesn't have children for a while. They only consummate their marriage after Mary Antoinette's brother, Joseph II, who is the Holy Roman Emperor, visits Paris incognito in 1777. And then in a series of letters, Joseph would describe uh, Louis as a rather weak individual but no imbecile. <laughs> like, the boy's not an idiot. He's just weak, basically. Positing that there was something apathetic in both his mind and body. And so he was describing, I just, I, there's all these quotes in here going on this from, from the letters. He described Louis and Marie Antoinette as two complete blunderers. <laughs> like, literally, his description of them was in the 18th century saying, they're just two fuck-ups. Yeah, I think they were doing it wrong because if he, like him helping them led to them actually having a kid, maybe they were confused as to the plumbing maybe. situation. Maybe, because what ends up happening afterwards is they end up having children. And Mary Antoinette, both Louis and Mary, would end up writing to the emperor, announcing when the queen was pregnant and thanking him for his help. Okay, so... Which sounds really it weird. It sounds suspicious, like, was the emperor the father then i'm confused something mm-hmm. is sus but hey okay yeah yeah that this is this is something to be a little bit of a problem because check it out the couple's first daughter uh mary therese she was born in 1778 this was followed by the birth of a dauphine louis joseph in 1781 and another boy louis charles in 1785 a final daughter sophie was born in 1787 though she was only going to live for 11 months Louis and his wife would dote on these children. These were births that would bring a lot of warmth, a lot of affection to a marriage that before had previously been cold. Remember, he didn't really care about her all that much. But after seven years of not consummating the marriage and everything else that would happen, uh, there was a lot of reputation damage that had been done. Louis XVI became the butt of a lot of jokes while the queen was accused of being an adulterer with some claiming that the royal children were not actually the king's. So Marie Antoinette would also be accused of being a careless spendthrift, a traitorous spy, and Louis XVI would always have to defend her through each and every single time one of these scandals would appear. Like there's an event in here called the, uh, the Affair of the Diamond Necklace that we're going to get into at a later point. The fact that Louis XVI, who was seen as a moral king, could be married to a woman like Marie Antoinette turned a lot of people against him. She didn't even do anything. No, but people's impression of her is what mattered. I don't like this. I know. You see, remember I was telling you when, when I was writing on things yesterday, I was like, oh man, Gabby, this is pretty sad. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is pretty sad with all this. But hey, we're not there yet. We're not at the downfall. On the 10th of May, 1774, King Louis XV would die at the age of 64. 
And at only 19 years old, Louis Auguste would ascend the throne as Louis XVI as King of France, as well as Navarre. However, along with his grandfather's kingdom, Louis XVI would also inherit, can you guess it, a massive debt. Because all these societal issues, all these debts, everything that they had in here was now right in front of him. And this brings us to the event that I wanted to talk about this entire thing that I didn't know that this was a thing before going into this. Right before Louis was officially supposed to be crowned, a miniature Civil War riot thing broke out in France called the Flower War. Is this where they took captives so that they'll have people for human sacrifice? Wait, what? In South America, remember they would do the flower oh wars. Oh my god! Oh, that confused me for a second. Yeah, okay, no, different kind of flower war. I was like, oh my god, wait, what the hell did I miss? Was there some <laughs> kind of book or something? Yeah, no, no, same night. Except in this case, it's not F L O W E R like a pretty flower. Uh, it's F L O U R like the flower that is used to make bread. I just wanted you to clarify before everyone had the same confused yeah, look on no, their face. Th- th- thank, thank you for that. So, okay, we're going to effectively speed run through this here because I know I've been talking here for a long time, right? Been two hours. <laughs> no way. Has it actually been? We started two- at like three something. It's five o'clock. Oh, no, no. I mean, from the time recording, it's, it's 108 right now. So we've been doing this for an hour. The Flower War refers to a series of approximately 300 different riots that swept through France from April and May of 1775, all because of rising bread prices. The revolts would only subside after soldiers had been deployed, resulting in hundreds of people getting arrested. And it was one of the first big manifestations of what you would then call the French Revolution. But it wasn't quite the revolution yet. This was just the opening stages where people are getting pissy. So check it. Remember when I talked about all the beginning issues with the, with the uh, failed harvest and everything that was happening? Yes. So the price of bread was the biggest, most important factor to the French lower classes in the twilight years of the ancient regime, right? This was the old system of nobility ruling. Bread made up three quarters of most ordinary people's diets. And so even in normal times, the poorest of workers oftentimes had to spend around half of their income just buying bread. Even a slight increase in bread prices could threaten people with starvation because they wouldn't, like, if half their income is already being spent on the prices as they are, if prices increase by 20%, they're screwed. And so with the sudden rise in prices, this is one of the most dangerous things that could possibly happen to public order. See, by the 1700s, grain had become easily the most popular and biggest crop in all of France. And although there had not been any widespread country famines, the six dec- in the six decades prior to 1770s, localized hunger was still an issue, and the fear of starvation had been enough to spark an obsession with growing grain. Other high-yield crops, such as maize, potatoes, these were more rarely grown since the two crops required a lot more fertilizer, and also there was a bunch of social issues that were going into it. This would prove to be a very difficult thing when most herds of livestock were either Well, I mean, like, they weren't very numerous. They weren't well-nourished enough to provide adequate manure, so it wasn't really worth it in the first place. And so aside from uh, Alsace-Lorraine, where potatoes were wildly cultivated, most French peasants still considered potatoes to be unfit for human consumption. Like, they were... Many of them didn't think they were even good for animals. And some of them would only use them for feeding pigs, and that's it. Because pigs could eat effectively anything. So these poisonous potatoes, the pigs were still able to eat. So many of them just refused to grow them. Like, why the hell would they grow this crop in the first place? So the popularity of grain combined with the lack of consistent access to meats and cheeses and any other kinds of products with the lower classes meant that bread made up a huge portion of ordinary people's diets. 
And that lack of diversification in French agriculture meant that if any of those crops failed, well, you're going to get something like the Irish potato famine, where the majority of what is produced is not going to actually work or be produced at all. And so although France had enjoyed many good years of harvest in the first half of the 18th century, from the 1760 onwards, harvest became more and more uncertain. Yields would fluctuate sharply. Between 1770 and 1789, over 19 years, only three harvest seasons were actually abundant everywhere in France. And so with each new generation, peasant farmland was divided amongst younger, or not younger, but like more and more sons, so that by the late 1700s, most countryside farms were small, with small yields and a risky crop that potentially could fail. And so the fear of famine prompted many French peasants to become extremely protective over their access to bread, as it was widely believed that the ability to feed oneself was a right that had to be protected by the authorities. This why, interestingly enough, funny little detail, do you know what the nickname of France, uh, of France's king was in this, like one of his many titles? No clue. The first baker of France. That makes a lot of because sense. Because he was responsible for feeding them their bread. Yeah, because even to this day, France has those weird bakery laws where you need to have a bakery within a certain distance of each person in the city of Paris, right? So mm -hmm. the bakeries can't just all close. They have to have someone open. Exactly. In the area. Like that sounds, this makes so much sense. Oh, it does, especially when you know this other context. And so people didn't like to steal bread because it was still seen as something that was moral. So if even if prices rose and bread was stolen, they would leave behind money. I can't even remember. I have the name in here later of what it's called. But they would leave behind money that was approximately equal in value to what they would say that it would be worth versus what the market price actually was. It was like kind of a moral payment thing that they would have to do. And people hated hoarders. If you were a person that was seen as hoarding bread or grain or flour or whatever, this was something that was punishable by death. When you say by the time of the French bread. Revolution, by by the time of the French Revolution, at this time so, you might just get beaten. Like what people do with water and bread during a hurricane, essentially. Correct. Yes. Yes. Let's bring that back. I'm joking. Oh my I'm god. I'm joking. It's a joke. Maybe we find them. Yep. So going into all this, right? This is this is something where going since the medieval ages, the moral economy had been upheld by a series of regulations within the grain market. And this was something that was specifically protected and safeguarded by French authorities to guarantee that people had access to grain. The regulations would include things like controlling who could participate in the sale of grain, limitations in business transactions, cultivators were prohibited from involving themselves any further with the grain market beyond selling the produce they had for fear that certain entities would become too powerful and monopolize the trade in any given region. Kind of like what happens with some of those regions where co-ops get dominated by a producer or by a seller that they have to sell through so they control everything. You know, like I think one of some of the stuff that we've talked about when in the case of northern India, where some of that stuff can happen. So as an example, bakers were allowed to purchase enough grain to make their bread, but they were forbidden from reselling any of their grain. So if they bought a bunch of grain to make bread and they had like two sacks of flour left over, they weren't allowed to sell that flour. They couldn't sell it to, for a profit for people. I like that they had all of this stuff implemented to kind of control it. I like how regulated it was. They really did that right, I think. Yes. Well, yes, but there were a lot of other aspects for controls that stopped actual economic growth from being able to occur. So it ended up leading to different kind of thoughts that in good times would work in bad times. Oh, well, we're going to be getting into that because this is where the physiocrats come into play. 
Aristocats? Physiocrats. So are they like the Aristocats? Kind of, but it comes from a philosophical economic policy called physocracy. Physiocracy. Oh, I was making an Aristocats joke. Sorry. (laughs) No, no. Okay. So, so get, get, get this right. Get this right. King Louis XVI of France, as we talked about, he comes to the throne in May of 1774, and he wants to be loved by the people. But the flower war breaks out less than a year into the start of his reign, and it makes the weeks before his coronation really rough because people, he's supposed to be the first baker, and people in the country are afraid that they're going to starve. And the root of the flower war could be found with one of Louis' first actions as king, the appointment of a 47-year-old economist by the name of Anne Robert Jacques Turgot as his controller general, the guy who's in charge of finances. So Turgot was a proponent of an economic theory known as physiocracy. This, in order to kind of explain it, it is something that advocates for a laissez-faire economic system. Uh, Physiocrats believe that an individual would work harder for his or her own benefit compared to the benefit of others, and laborers would be more productive for more profit, which would benefit consumers by providing more of a supply for their demand, lowering prices, and this was the natural economy that was something that was an inherent law of nature and was intended by God. It was basically what would happen if you mixed laissez-faire capitalism with religion of like, this is the natural of the world, order of the world. This is what it's supposed to be. Remove all barriers. Let people grow and make what it is they want to be able to sell this stuff. Remove all regulations whatsoever. And people will produce whatever it is that they need. It is like religious libertarian. You could almost say that's kind of what they were doing. And so here's here's the thing. Physiocratic measures had been taken before. They didn't work. This is something that when the ministers of Louis XV of France had removed grain regulations, this was met almost immediately with shortages and localized riots in 1767 and 1768. Most regulations were then restored by 1770, and four years later, when Turgot is now in charge, he is faced with this massive task of trying to fix the French economy and was still convinced that physiocracy was something that could work with France because he believed that trade and manufacture would flourish under the system. And so on the 13th of September, 1774, he abolishes regulations and announces a free trade in grain. Remember some of those regulations that were in there before, though, like people couldn't hoard stuff and then resell it at a higher price? Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is where we're going to be coming into a little bit of a problem. See, Turgot's edict was very poorly timed, coming out just at the end of, can you guess it, a failed harvest. Oh, no. Yep. So the poor harvest of 1774 was going to be a problem because although Turgot was made aware that, hey, there were unfavorable harvest conditions as early as August 1774. He, um, when, when asked whether or not he would postpone it, he said, no, we're going to go for it anyway. So the harvest had not been equally poor in every region of France. And so consequently, many merchants who were no longer inhibited by the different grain regulations began buying up all the grain in areas that had done better, where prices were cheaper and then selling them in the hard-hit regions for drastically marked-up prices. And the attempt by these merchants to corner the market ensured that the food shortage in the spring of 1775 went from a problem that was affecting several regions to a countrywide emergency. Because even in places where the harvest did actually pretty well, all of the grain was being bought so that it could be sold at a higher price later to other places. 
Did he know that there was a failed harvest? Yes. He knew that the conditions weren't looking good and said, no, we're going to do it anyway. Oh, why did Louis appoint this guy? Did he just have listen, a really good interview? Listen, I don't know. Louis makes a lot of questionable decisions. He wanted a lot to be loved. Also, your wording on the entry paragraph, you're like, he wanted to be loved. I was like, oh, he did. And then you go by the people. Oh, that's less cool. It could have been like a historical romance. Well, you know, he. Wow. No, but he actually seriously did just want to be loved. That was one of his things. He actually did care about people, even if he was horribly out of touch. Which makes things even more sad. He needed some good advisors. I think a lot oh, of this could have been. With a lot of this how stuff. do how did they pick advisors? Did they just go, who are the dumbest people I know? Okay, you're I don't up. know. I don't know. And so this, of course, leads to riots. The famine began to affix, affect people more quickly. And although the French government starts to order food shipments from foreign countries in order to bring grain into the market, these were not going to arrive quickly enough. On 15th of March, 1775, the first signs of unrest could be seen in Reims, which was the city that was preparing to host the coronation of Louis the following June. Because unnerved by the food shortage, a crowd of around 200 people formed outside of a monastery asking for reduced bread prices. The monastery then doled out bread and the crowd dispersed without violence. No issues. But a month later, as prices continued to spike, Trouble would break out in the Burgundy region when a group of rioters end up sacking the home of a miller who was accused of selling bad flour. And when the miller went to hide in a friend's house, the riots then sacked that house too before stopping a grain barge that was on its way down a river and forced the merchants to sell their supply on the spot. So they weren't able to take it to other regions to sell for a higher price. That's only the beginning. And it's not bad. Yet. It's going to get worse. We still haven't even gone to the revolution, guys. It's been like an hour and a half. No, this is just the setup. I told you this. I told you this going into this of what it was that I was creating. So the flower war really only kicked off in the beaumont sur oise which is a village in the Paris region on the 22nd of April in the, um, um, like in this area where one set here, which I know I'm butchering the pronunciation of, I apologize, but that is a unit like 4.43 bushels of wheat and rye were being sold for the high price of 26 levers in the village market. The village, of course, would grumble at the price, but they would pay it if they could. And five days later, the market would appear to be well stocked. But then, when the villagers believed that the prices were supposed to have dropped, instead of being discounted, now the price was 32 levers per setter. And so outraged, arguments broke out between villagers and merchants and the argument soon flared into riots. Rioters drove the merchants from their stalls, they ransacked the displays, and the rioters, adhering to the taxation populaire, which that's, I'm glad I put that in the notes, because that's the thing that I was talking about earlier, where they would pay a fair price. They made sure not to steal the grain, but to leave behind payment that they thought it was worth. Because when times were good, the standard price of what the grain should have been was more around 12 or 13 livres per setter. So that's what they did. Mind you, they, before they were being charged 32, that is almost three times the price. Like imagine, imagine if half of your income goes to bread and the price of bread has increased by 300%. You literally can't afford to eat. There's no food. You can't do anything. And so after taking what they needed, the riot fizzled out on its own and most people went home before the authorities could respond. Early the next morning, 11 people from the town of Beaumont-sur-Oise would travel down to the town of Meru and told the townsfolk there what it is that they had done. 
Then when the Maru market opened for business some hours later, the townsfolk followed their neighbor's example, and they rushed the stalls and pillaged the grain again. The crowd that was mostly made up of women ripped sacks open with knives and they scooped up as much grain as they could into their aprons before they carried it home. And as word of this riot spread, the next day in the town of Pontois, 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 Pontois. It sounds, I think that's what that. It might be then Pontois. Either way, over 100 people inside of that intercepted and ransacked several grain carts that were, while also simultaneously sacking the homes of six prominent grain and flour merchants. Basically, if you were in any kind of position to be selling food and you had been a person that had been marking up prices or anything, your life was potentially in danger. And so in the following days following the initial riot on the 27th of April, similar uprisings would occur throughout towns all throughout Paris. Now, eventually, from all this, right, as people are rushing in, the police have to start showing up in the cases. And so the French send out naturally their cavalry. They start riding into things and to trying to disperse them. Meanwhile, the rioters are attacking people and locations with scissors, knives, sledgehammers, everything. They're refusing to stop trying to break into the grain stores even as the police arrive. So the police then fire on people inside of Vernon, Normandy, wounding six people. This only enrages the crowd further and they throw stones at displays and assault three mills before finally dispersing. On the 6th of May, the riots finally hit their peak, reaching 14 markets and 42 separate villages on that day. And trouble would begin to boil into the countryside as well, with brigands now invading and ransacking lands belonging to simple farmers to steal grain. These attacks were the exception, though, as most of the rioters would focus their efforts and anger on the people that were profiting from all this, like the rich millers and the members of parliament. Remember the ones who owned all those grain facilities and everything and managed all the taxes? Yeah, that was them. This was something that would only get worse for some areas, though. I say that that was really the peak where it was like the most of it would happen. But then eventually it would even come back to fight the royals. Fight, bite, bite, bite is the word that I'm looking for. So riots in Versailles and the crowns, like, so riots in Versailles would occur and the crown would have to respond to this. So on the 2nd of May, four days before the peak of the war, it was reported to the king that thousands of rioters were marching on Versailles. And although the story would later circulate that Louis XVI would bravely open the gates and let the rioters in and speak kindly to his people and would calm them down with fatherly and very sympathetic words. Um, and then supposedly the crowd would then shout, long live the king, yay. No, that doesn't seem to have really happened. Um, police records seem to indicate that not only did the royal family flee Versailles for their own safety, but simultaneously the, rider, the, the rioters were not even heading for the palace. Instead, they just immediately moved to the royal grain stores and stole 900 sacks of flour. Yeah. So this is something that would only just create more and more chaos uh, across the country. And eventually, the king has to put a stop to all of this. Hoping that things would calm down in Reims in time for the king's coronation, Turgot orders the mobilization of charity workshops in the city and along the route to Paris to provide disgruntled commoners with work and also with bread. On the 5th of May, Louis XVI officially calls for a swift and severe repression of the riots, 
And on the 9th of May, he offers general amnesty to all rioters who return their stolen goods in cash or in kind, except for any leaders or instigators of the issue. Those that did were going to end up being arrested. And because the Crown's response was as severe and also as amicable as it was, the movement overall lost a lot of momentum. And the Flower War eventually was over before the 11th of June, 1775, the date that he was coronated. Just as he promised, the king's crackdown on the Flower War rioters was severe, but it wasn't as bad as anything that had compared to previous riots or other issues. Like 92% of the people that were arrested were just in the Paris region alone where they actually had more authority. More people ended up actually getting off of things. Without of all this, only 548 people getting arrested. And even among all of that, very few were convicted. Two were condemned to hang, 15 were sentenced to servitude as galley slaves, and five of these were life sentences, and nine received sentences to royal prisons. That's it. Eventually, all of this would have to settle down. And the Flower War was by no means the first or the most important food riot of the 18th century. It was a relatively bloodless affair, apart from the two executions, and it did nothing to change the status quo. But coming so soon after the ascension of Louis XVI, the Flower War seemed to be one of the first warning signs that something really bad was getting ready to happen in France. What happened to Turgot? He lost a job. Oh. Yeah. So that Good. whole thing with physiocracy and everything that they tried before, they, they had to cancel I know it. what he was trying to do, though. And yeah. it would make sense for everything except for the literal grain, like the food of the country. If you were talking about a situation, remember how they had a bunch of small farmers, small farmers producing barely subsistence level with a little bit of that going to the market. If they were in a situation where they didn't have that and it was large scale industrial farms that were producing massive amounts of food and it was more consistent. Reducing barriers that way when you have a good food supply in the beginning is great. When you were running into a situation where they could all get screwed over. Did these people study like economics yes. and history and yes. and they politics? Had, yeah, I mean, this was the international relations. Yes, and this was the time of economic theory. This was, they so were probably when, just a little bit bad at it. Huh? So, Gabby, when we're talking about the working the, it out. The, Yes, literally, that's what it is. The 1700s going into the early 1800s, this is when all that economic theory was being developed and coming into play. Well, look so at that. So people were testing out different things. They figured it out. And look at us. We're thriving on what they figured out. Yay. <laughs> Thanks. Anyway, I actually skipped past a number of things that I had in here because of just how long, and I realized this was going into, because you saw, you saw how much work was going into this. This episode, as it stands right now, is an hour and a half. So we are going to need to stop things here for today. But that is the end of the Flower Wars. On the next thing that we're going to be talking about. Wait, wait, wait. Do you have to do the voice where you're like, coming up? Next time on the History of Everything. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hold on. Give me, give me a second. Let me see. Let me see. Next time on the History of Everything, Louis XVI ascends his throne. The world trembles. It's going to go great. I'm rooting for him. <laughs> Goodbye, Thanks for everyone. listening, guys. Bye. New episode will be coming out here fairly soon. I apologize for the delay.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.